0: Thank you all for being here. Good afternoon. Welcome to this session on best practices for secure to secure Big Data Lake on AWS. My name is Varun Rao Bhamidi Murray. I'm a solutions architect with AWS. With me on stage is Tony Injun, who's a senior Big Data Consultant with AWS. So before we get started and get into the details of securing Data Lake, we wanted to set a few high-level expectations, what, what, what we want you to leave this session with. Three main things we want you to leave the session with. First, understanding the value proposition of why a data lake on AWS makes sense and how to build it. The second is to get a a sense of the best practices that are involved to secure it. And finally, the roles and responsibilities that are required in order to make that happen. The way we would approach this is through a scenario-based approach. We would actually have a sample data set uh, we'll look at how the different access patterns will be used, and then based on that, we'll provide best practice to secure it. A few assumptions on housekeeping before, uh, before we move on. Uh, this, this is a 300-level session, so we do expect some foundational AWS knowledge. Uh, we do assume uh, uh, some of the high-level understanding of the AWS analytics services as well as some high-level concepts around security. So this is things like SSL and TLS, encryption, authorization, authentication. So uh, these sessions are recorded and will be shared online, uh, so you, you don't have to take pictures if you don't want to. The other one uh, is this is targeted to anyone who's looking to build a secure data lake on AWS. So any conversations that you've been recently having within your organization about data lake and securing it, this should be a good, this should give you a good start. Finally, uh, I want to really emphasize on this fact, the uh, please submit your feedback. This is a new session, we haven't had this before. Uh, We would really appreciate some feedback in order for us to improve this uh, going forward. So with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Tony, who's gonna walk us through some foundation, uh, foundations around
1: Data Lake. Thanks, Viran. So show of hands, who here, has used S3 as their data lake. Cool. Who here has a data catalog as part of that solution? And who here thinks that they have a secure data lake today? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're here to help with, right? So let's go ahead and get started. So level setting, what is a data lake? So it seems that most of us here know at a high level what a data lake is for, to some extent. But the four key premises I would like to just make sure that everyone's aware of is that you want to be able to collect and store all your data at any scale at low cost, right? You want to be able to help locate, curate, and secure data for your users. You want to be able to provide that sort of democratized access to that data, and you want to be able to enable your users to perform new kinds of analyses and faster kinds of analyses on that data. And really, that's what customers need, right, when they're looking at a data lake. They want something scalable, secure, and really something comprehensive. And there are a couple of 10 key attributes of a modern data architecture that you may have seen in past reinvents or summits or what have you. And they kind of serve as a guide for what's needed for a mature data strategy in any organization. It's not to say that you need all 10 of these, But it's a good place to start, you know, if you have a good amount of them. I want to have these pillars be the fundamental guide through which we look at how we secure a data lake. And for the rest of the session, I do kind of want to actually boil this down to even three lower level components, that being compute, catalog, and storage. And you'll notice down there that I'm saying architectural layers of a data lake without security, and that's kind of strange, right? We're in a security session right now, but I'm saying no security. But I have a good reason for that. And I'll dive into that uh, later in the session. So let's go ahead and quickly go through what, la- what each layer is comprised of. So let's talk about storage first. So storage, right, is not just your storage on EC2 instance. You need to consider object level storage, that storage on S3 or Glacier. You need to consider block level storage, stuff in EBS, stuff on, say, EFS, stuff on your attached instance store on EC2, stuff in your Redshift clusters, And some things that might not necessarily be intuitive, right? Your storage when you're using Kinesis, that storage. Your storage when you're using DynamoDB, you need that to be secured as well. And so when you're going through a sort of security assessment of your services and how you're using them in AWS today, you need to be able to clearly and cleanly articulate how you are securing each one of these different kinds of storage. Second, metadata and catalog. It's not necessarily mandatory to have a catalog in this day and age when people are talking about data lake, right? You have plenty of people that are just using S3, doing some sort of batch workloads, and then calling it a day. That's my data lake. And really, you need to be working towards having a strategy around cataloging your data, storing the metadata of your objects, because that enables you to do a bunch of things, right? You have indexed your data, you're able to search on it, you curate it, you're able to really target data for your users and enable them to search that data for themselves. Last but not least, compute. And compute, by itself, is more than just EC2, right? You have EMR, you have Redshift, you have Redshift Spectrum, you have serverless compute, such as Athena, Lambda, API Gateway, and you notice down at the bottom, I mentioned a sort of hybrid approach. Spectrum shows up again, right? And these kinds of different models of how you can run compute on your data really have changed in the past couple of years, right? And you need to be able to define how you're running compute on your data as well. So that's nice that we really identify those individual components, right? But how do we actually do it in AWS? So this is a general overview diagram of what a data lake looks like in AWS. You've probably seen it to some extent. And we're gonna go through each one of the components just as a level set quickly. So ingest, you ingest through maybe VPN connection, maybe through a Direct Connect, um, maybe a Snowball appliance or a Kinesis Firehose. Um, if anyone's been catching up with the updates and news recently, we just recently released a new, uh, a new service called Data Sync, making it a lot easier for you to sync your data from on-prem to S3. So give that a look. Um, another feature that we have is also Secure FTP for S3. Um, that's also relatively new, so give that a look as well, Varun will go deeper into those. Um, Processing. You can use EMR, you can use EC2, you can use um, all sorts of things uh, to process your data, right? And you want to massage it into a format that you later analyze. And you want to be able to choose the right tool for the job to process and analyze your data. And while this diagram kind of shows that flexibility, right, you can bring your own tool, you can kind of do all kinds of cool things with the data lake, the flexibility that it provides, it's really challenging to secure all these tools, because it lets you choose the right tool for the job, but it makes it really challenging to have a single unified solution to secure all of it. For example, EMR is comprised of 20, more than 20, actually, open source applications from the big data ecosystem, and each one of those has its own special snowflake way of securing itself, right? They try to standardize sometimes, maybe kerberize your cluster, but for the most part, you have to consider each one of those tools in isolation. And remember the layers from before? Separating your data lake into those discrete layers makes it easier to tackle this challenge, right? It's still hard, don't get me wrong. But if you're able to kind of think of them in those kinds of separate layers, security is actually part of each layer. And so from storage to metadata to compute, you should be looking at each of those layers with security in mind. So let's go ahead and dive deep into what's required to actually secure those layers. So it really helps to first start off with the common challenges that many customers have. Raise your hands if you have any of these problems. I expect to see all hands up, because this is a these are very common problems across all enterprises. And you can kind of separate these challenges into data challenges and management challenges. And, And sort of splitting it this way can help frame the discussion. So, shared responsibility model. Again, show of hands, who's aware of it? And it's typically something that's very glossed upon, right? You you look at a deck and it's like, oh, shared responsibility model, AWS is responsible for this chunk, customer's responsible for this chunk. Yay. Well, we need to go even deeper than that. The shared responsibility model with respect to AWS services is actually further broken down into three separate classes, in my mind anyway. Infrastructure services, managed services, and serverless services, where we consider the control plane and data plane as part of our evaluation. And from end to end, these kind of represent a spectrum of how each service can have a different balance of customer responsibility and AWS responsibility. So, for example, EC2 and EBS, right? You, as the customer, are fully responsible for what happens within your EC2 instance and on your EBS volumes. The control plane is really fully separated from the data plane. In contrast, serverless, services such as Athena or S3, the control plane and the data plane are unified. There's a single endpoint that you talk to, and you really only have, say, IAM policies that you have to worry about when you're securing it. Managed services such as EMR and Redshift kind of sit in the middle, right? We help you provision those instances, but they actually still exist as EC2 instances, right? In the EMR cluster, I mean, the EMR console, you have EC2 instances that show up. Redshift, you can choose EC2 instances. But the level at which you can control and secure these EC2 instances are different between the two, right? EMR, you have root level access to your instances. So you need to be able to uh, secure the local file system, for example, whereas for Redshift, even though it's still an EC2 instance, you don't have that root level access, but you still need to consider auth and auth z when you're looking at securing a Redshift cluster. Let's dig uh, leave it a, a little bit even more deeper into the differences. So as you can see with serverless kinds of services, right, you have less to worry about. AWS takes care of a lot of the securing of it, and you have an IAM policy really at the end of the day to care and feed. And it's super important to understand where IAM is protecting you and where it's not because that's what you are responsible for as a customer. And because IAM controls permissions at the API level, there are two very important implications. The first one is that IAM extends into these services like S3 and can be, control, can be used to control access to actions in S3 and even individual S3 objects. And that's because S3 is a fully managed service that's only exposed via API. And that's in contrast to EMR and Redshift where IAM only controls the outside of the cluster, right? You you can control what the cluster uh, talks to you to some extent. You can, Control the creation, the modification, the termination, but within the EMR cluster itself, a user can do whatever they want, right? If they logged in as root, they have full control over that system. If, for example, you have a user that logs into an EMR cluster that has very permissive IAM policies attached to it, you've really just had a bad day, and. it's it's actually happened. (laughs) And and it's something to consider, it really is. So keep that in mind. Whenever you're evaluating services, think about the shared responsibility model because that really does help frame security evaluations. So we've really mapped out how challenging it can be, right? So let's go ahead and start with some best practices and go over how you can secure the cloud. So we provide um, a bunch of services and a bunch of features to help you secure the cloud, right? I'm sure most of you are aware at least to some extent, uh, the breadth at which we we help the customer do so. Um, Let's go ahead and focus on S3, right? And, And this is just one example. We really want to help remove that undifferentiated heavy lifting of securing your resources so that you can focus on your core competencies, right? So, S3. S3 gives control at the object level, right, rather than the bucket level. It allows you to apply access controls. It allows you to do logging. It allows you to audit your policies at um, account and object levels. Uh, It supports three different kinds of encryption. Um, You can do KMS, server side, client side. Um, You get uh, data encrypted in transit. Um, You can use separate accounts for, say, cross-reaching replication so that you limit your blast radius if there's um, insider threat, things like that. Um, There's also cross-compatibility between services. So, for example, Amazon Macy. uh, It's an uh, AI-powered security service. Who's used it? I really encourage that people actually take a look at Macy if you can um, because it really helps your security teams monitor, detect, and alert on anomalies within S3. And one example of how the cloud model has really kind of changed how people look at securing their resources, especially big data and data-like resources, is how you look at ownership, right? Uh, historically, on-prem systems, you have um, the notion of being multi-tenant is basically a given, right? You're, you are sharing with somebody. It's very rare that you get a cluster all to yourself. And you have multiple users, you have multiple groups that all have their own groups with an AD, and they all need to kind of play happily together. Um, in contrast, if your business can allow for it, you want to be able to actually look at taking advantage of the unique proposition that the cloud gives, letting you spin up an 100-node EMR cluster with a click of a button, and giving that cluster to a single user or a single team. By having access control be at this sort of coarse grain level, you can control things with IAM. And you can also reduce the, uh, the attack surface or the surface area at which you're at risk of a credential being lost because it's only allocated to one user or a group. If you have your resources dedicated to teams or groups or users, you can govern access much easier. Remember, you should also encrypt everything. The intersection of your key management strategy and your encryption point is your S3 encryption mode. And depending on your workload, the choice of S3 encryption mode is very important, right? If you're doing client-side encryption and uh, your application depends heavily on uh, leveraging SSE on S3, um, the security team's concept and the application team's concept are eventually going to collide uh, two weeks before production and you're in trouble. You also need to fully understand how you're fully auditing and logging access and activity within your environment. And S3 lets you see um, all API calls, right? Athena lets you see all API calls. Um, you really want to leverage uh, tools such as CloudTrail with these services because they, they basically list all the activity for you, makes it really easy to audit. I mean, it simplifies um, security analysis, force mortems, all that kind of fun stuff. And just to level set again before we go on, here are some key fundamental things I think that everyone should be doing, right? Everyone should be doing in the cloud. So you want to be able to federate your accounts with AD or your IDP, right? You don't want to have to manage multiple accounts. Let's say a user or an employee leaves your organization, you have to track down every single place that person has been and deactivate their account. Whereas if you have it federated, that's just one less place to look. MFA, root account credentials, encryption, that's the basic list. So as we was talking about before, let's go through a scenario-based approach to talking about security in a data lake. And we'll be covering a bunch of scenarios, all centered around this notion of users or roles that interact with the data lake. And so, for example, let's say you have a developer with programmatic access to the the data lake and they want to run a Spark SQL job against data in S3 and convert it to something. That's one potential workflow. Another workflow might be you have an analyst who wants to view data with masked column values. That's another workflow. Uh, Another one might be you have a business user, right, who really only wants to use the data lake as a really easy-to-search repository for the documents, like, say, Excel documents, right? That's another use case. And all these roles have actions and responsibilities. And it's really useful to think of them in terms of producers and consumers. There's a clear source of data, and there's a clear consumer of data. And you can separate rights and responsibilities based on whether or not they are producing or consuming a particular data set. So a brief aside here, and and I do want to make this a very big point that I want you to walk out of here with. The data catalog is extremely important. Through 2018, 80% of data lakes will not include effective metadata management capabilities, make them inefficient. I saw probably about less than 20% of hands go up when I when I asked about the catalog. So, pretty accurate. And with the purpose and the importance of catalog kind of established, let's go through the first scenario, where are a data lake owner, or that is a data owner, wants to um, onboard a new data set, right? They have a new data set, And they have to talk to a developer or data engineer to create that dataset definition, right, to to give it a schema or something to that effect. And then you need to talk to some data engineer to actually have it be loaded or staged as raw data inside of your environment. And then you have a data curator or some other person operating in a similar role registering that raw data, let's say in S3, against that dataset definition that was established, right? I mean, this kind of is intuitive, but at the same time, you'd be surprised how often a security assessment will go through and they forget that the developer actually has rights to see every single S3 object. Whoops, they weren't supposed to. But because they're an ETL developer, they, they like that freedom, they like being able to touch everything, but that actually exposes a huge risk for that data. Let's say that workflow has successfully completed. Another workflow is to be able to take place where you want to be able to search for that data in the catalog and access it. And there are discrete actions for each of these, right? Per role. It's not to say that this needs to be a really slow manual process, right? All this can be automated to some effect. But the important thing that I want to take away from this is that you'd want to be able to understand the multiple roles that are involved for a particular workflow, right? Because it helps you kind of identify what you need to secure. Let me go ahead and pass it over to we're going to go through uh, some security um, workflows. So, my All
0: right, thank you, Tony. So, uh, as Tony just mentioned, the different roles uh, that that the organization might might need to have in order to have a secure Data Foundation, uh, we'll look at the first uh, first role that comes into mind, which is called the Security Administrator, uh, and look at some of the tasks that, that he, he, has, he or she has to go through in order to actually secure uh, the data lake implementation. So the first thing as a security admin is to understand the different access patterns, the different analytic tools that are involved. Again, this is going back to uh, some of the slides that Tony kind of mentioned, but if you kind of go from left to right, you start from the centralized storage, right, which is usually the S3. We have a a catalog service that sits on top of it that helps catalog the information. And then in the middle is the different processing engines. So this includes things like Athena, EMR, uh, Amazon Redshift, and Amazon Redshift Spectrum. And from the access perspective, There are tools like Amazon SageMaker, which helps you build machine learning models, deploy, train, and and build machine learning models, and also web-based notebooks like Zeppelin and Jupyter, and also also things like JDBC endpoints to access and connect to uh, services like Presto that's running on EMR or Redshift or Redshift Spectrum. So really at a a broad level, if you look on the right, uh, the three types of access patterns can be uh, categorized as programmatic access a SQL-based access or an API-based. So when I, may, when I say programmatic access, it could include things like PySpark or a Scala-based access. Uh, others SQL-based uh, access can be things like Hive, Presto, and Spark SQL. This is usually the most standard way of accessing the data. And finally, the API-based. An example of that is, uh, is Amazon Athena. It helps you uh, make an API call, submit your query, and actually get streaming results back. So, really, uh, as, as, a, as a security admin, it's very important to understand those security patterns across, across the organization. Moving on, uh, just high-level uh, uh, tasks that might be involved. So, starting with guardrails. So, as a, as a security administrator, you, you are responsible to set up the security guardrails, which includes things like uh, preemptive and detective controls. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, also to uh, actually understand how the access across environments go through. So you think about dev environment and, de- and staging environment and production environment. So when data access goes beyond a specific environment, that's when a ad security administrator should be involved to make sure the right set of data classification rules are applied making sure the data consumer or the data producer are in sync. There's this right set of rules that are, uh, that are followed to make sure if the, the producer says this is the column that the consumer has access to, that's being followed. And finally, uh, just running regular audits. So uh, going into some uh, preemptive and detective controls, uh, Amazon S3, as that's being that's we call it the centerpiece of our data lake architecture. It's in, it's important to understand how to use things like bucket policies. So you can t- use things like bucket policies to r- restrict access based on a VPC that is, that the data is being accessed from, or a specific IP address. Uh, a couple of other uh, you know useful things that you could you could use uh, as as a part of the IAM policy is things like tags and conditions. Extremely important. So uh, if you look at a couple of examples that I'm showing, the first one shows how you can use a tag-based control or condition where you can say this S3 bucket or this S3 object can only be accessed by this user and only if that has a specific tag which which is HIPAA equals true. The second one is actually using what's called user agent. So think about uh, an example where you would... You want to access. You want to only enable Redshift Spectrum access to this S3 bucket and not any outside access. So you don't want users to directly access the S3 bucket or through other ways. Only way to access is through Spectrum. So you could do that through through this conditional statement. Uh, a few other things are pretty uh, standard things like enabling encryption, en- enabling versioning, and NM- MFA delete, uh, backups across regions. A couple of new things that were launched recently. Back in July, we launched this uh, this feature called IAM Permission Boundaries, which lets you control what the user has access to. So think about this as uh, an S3 star that is given to a user, but the boundary actually uh, locks it down so that it cannot do things like deleting a bucket or maybe updating a bucket policy. So it kind of overrides whatever the explicit uh, IAM policy that's been applying to the user. Finally, the last one, a uh, recent, uh, recent announcement came out Back, in, uh, back, in, back on 15th, uh, 15th of November, this idea of uh, using uh, access setting, a public access setting. So think about this as a way to restrict public access at a bucket level or an account level without having, uh, and, and that can override any other bucket policy. So uh, it's something that, that's available now if you go to uh, the s 3 console, you'll be able to actually see this and apply this uh, public access setting. Okay, moving on to detective controls, uh, which touched upon a little bit. So starting from AWS Config, uh, it is it is a way to track resources and inventory changes. It helps you look at things like you know I'm I'm kind of showing a few of these examples of few of the config rules, things like public read, public write, or SSL only requests. So you can enable these these config rules that will automatically check. And, and, and notify you when there is a variation. If somebody changes the, S, S, the SSL request only parameter in the bucket policy, or if it's somebody makes it a public, read or public write, you'll get notified on that, and you can take corrective action. CloudTrail, uh, again, you know, very important. CloudTrail also has this idea of data events and management events. So data events are events, things like S3 access, or somebody's making a get call or a put call. All those requests get access, uh, get logged through, uh, through data events. A couple of services that are currently supported is S3 and Lambda. Uh, and, and, and what's nice about this is if you Kerberize uh, you your EMR cluster to, do a, to, a cluster, to, a, to enable a cluster-level authentication, the information, the AD-level information of the user is actually passed down directly to the CloudTrail data events. Couple of the services uh, we just touched upon, uh, Amazon, Amazon Guard Duty helps you, ma- uh, help, have, it's a managed threat detection as a service. It can look at things like CloudTrail and VPC flow logs, the DNS logs, and uh, do things like anomaly detection. Very important, uh, very useful service, something that, that as a security administrator should be looking at. So these are all, you know, the idea here is to kind of give you all these options and, and tools in your toolbox to understand which one makes sense. And then uh, last one is Amazon Macy, which helps you classify data. So it can look at our S3 bucket, identify if the data has PII level information, and then have a dashboard and, and, and notify if, based on how the data is being accessed. Okay? Uh, moving on. Uh, encryption in motion or, in, or encrypt data in transit. So this is an important feature as well. So as, as a security administrator, the fact that there are... All these different data flow, the network flows of your data, uh, all these different data access patterns, you have to kind of understand what network flow is my request going through. So an example, you know, if you you look at an example like S3 and EMR, so data, data, the requests going back between S3 and EMR are secure by default, but if a request comes from uh, a client connecting directly to Redshift, it is not secure by default. So it requires a special setting that needs to be enabled, called required SSL, it's called a TLS parameter. So it is, is again, you know, as a security administrator, it's important to understand how the data access patterns are happening, what are the network flows of your data, and make sure each of these flows have the right security in place for uh, encryption in transit. Let's walk through a little bit about authorization. So we're going to talk about this. So uh, when you enable federation, so think about this as a standard Active Directory. You have 80 groups like developer, analyst, and data engineer. Uh, when you enable federation with, uh, with AWS, that gets mapped out to what we call as IAM roles. And IAM roles could look like something like a developer role, an analyst role, or, or a data engineer role. Once that gets mapped out, those roles needs to be pushed down to individual services in order to, to kind of do the authorization. So example here is that IAM role called developer role needs to be mapped to a, a DB group. So if you think about from a standard relational database, things like grants that actually control who has access to what, that, that with, when you enable federation at the Redshift level, that role can be mapped to a DB group, and then you can control uh, access at that level. At the, uh, at the EMR level, a couple of options, a couple of things that you have to do uh, based, on, uh, based on storage-based security or service-based, so service authorization and storage authorization. So EMR security configuration can be used in order to do that. So think about this as access directly to S3 from, from an EMR cluster. By default, that access happens through a role that the, e, the, the EC2 instance has. But if you want to change that and make sure that it actually is a role of the user that it, that is mapped to, you would actually enable that through security configuration. I'm going to show you an example of that. And then the next, uh, Apache Ranger is one of the other services that you can use uh, that that can do the service level authorization. So, you can think about Hive and uh, HBase and and, uh, some of the services that can be authorized to that. And finally, data catalog, right? This is the Glue catalog. Uh, How many of you have actually tried out resource-based policies on Glue catalog? Okay, just a few of Few, few. So uh, again, an important feature. This is something that was released recently, and what it does is, if you think about the the, the, the contrast between identity-based policies and resource-based policies, an identity-based policy is something that gets assigned to an IAM user or a role or a group. Uh, resource-based policy goes the up op- the opposite. So you actually assign it at a resource level. So uh, some of the services that support that support currently are things like SQS, SNS, and S3. Uh, Glue Catalog also supports that. So what you could do is you could go to the Glue Catalog, pick up a table, and then say this table has read access for this specific role. So this uh, kind of simplifies the whole authorization model, especially when it comes to uh, comes to catalog. Okay? Quickly mapping this. So now if you, uh, you know, from a traditional way of how you actually do uh, ACLs on a, on a database level, so this... Uh, you know, what you would use uh, is called database grants. Uh, a standard grant would look something like that. So uh, on the left, we have a table called user table. We have an AD group called developer, and we use something like a grant group developer, select access to this specific table. Pretty straightforward, right? Now that needs, t- in case of D- glue catalog, because now we, don't have, we have a separation of storage, compute, and catalog, this kind of control can now be inserted directly to the catalog level. And the way you would do that is something like this. So you have an action called uh, glue, uh, glue get table or get partition. The principle here, if you know it, is basically the role, the same role that the AD group is mapped to as, to as, uh, as soon as we do the federation. And then the resource happens to be the table that you want to lock down this control to. So, so as, as a security administrator, it's important to understand how this mapping works because it changes the, the, uh, changes this this whole idea of doing ACLs at a database level that you're used to on-prem with traditional relational databases to how you would do that with all this separate compute storage and, and, and metadata catalog. Okay, moving on to the storage. So S3 is not a POSIX compliance file system, so it doesn't follow the same semantics. So if you have to do like a standard ACL, like read, write, execute, how would you do that? So this gets mapped again to uh, things like bucket policies. So you know what you see on the left is a standard S3 bucket path. We have an AD group called developer. We want to give him list and, uh, list and get get object access. So we have effect ac- allow action uh, list bucket and get object and the principle being the same IAM role that the AD group is mapped to and the resource being the, uh, the path of the S3, uh, S3 bucket, okay? So that's all good. So we got the, get a good sense of the foundational stuff that a security admin has to understand. Now let's go through what we call a scenario-based uh, s- settings to understand what are the data flows and, and try to see how we have to secure this. Uh, let's take a quick example of a, a retail company that has sales, product, and customer. Standard setting, uh, their sales broken by SKU and customer ID. Uh, the, the SKU is mapped to a product table. The product has SKUs. And, and product category, and, and as well as a manufacturer, and a customer, which uh, which has some PI level information like age, gender, and location. So uh, some some uh, basic insights that you want to gather from this. Start with that, right? So as a business user, let's say a user who's external to the customer, or external to the uh, to the to the company. And as a manufacturer, I would want to know what are my sales by a product category. What are my sales by a location? Give me a forecast of what the sales would look like. Now, what's important to understand here is as a business user, I should not be allowed to see data that is outside of my manufacturer, right? Uh, again, this should be seamless so that when he or she accesses, accesses a report, the data is already filtered and presented to him. Second one is analyst. An employee of the company belongs to a specific product line or business unit. Uh, They are doing similar kind of analysis. They're kind of doing the sales by the product category. But in this case, there is no filtering required at a manufacturer level, right? So this is saying, give me all the sales by a specific product category. Example could be things like electronics. And the last one is data scientists are running forecast models and figuring out what the sales would look like based on a specific age group, location, or year. So standard uh, set of questions you might ask from this, uh, from this, from this table structure. So uh, if we have to onboard this, so thinking about kind of going back to that workflow we just discussed, so analysts or a business user asking this question, get me the sales by a product category. Now this doesn't currently exist in the data catalogs, so it's a new data source, we don't have this information, well, how do I go about doing this? Set up a data pipeline. The data pipeline would involve things, services like EMR and S3. Once the data is, is uh, scheduled and you have the data kind of flowing into the storage in S3, the curator, a data curator comes in and basically starts saying, okay, now I'm going to register to a catalog and make sure that it's available for other users to got, start searching for this information and then start subscribing for it. So it's very important, so if you look on the top, we store, discover, subscribe, deliver, and analyze. So this idea that you're storing it, you're making it discoverable, you're you're giving this option of people to kind of search for it and subscribe, and as soon as you subscribe, the data gets delivered to them, or to them, the format that they require that in. Finally, the security administrator uh, goes back and kind of sets up the right set of policies, uh, again, using standard IAM controls to actually control who has access to uh, that data catalog. And then then the analyst gets access to it and starts building reports using services like Athena and QuickSight. So um, if we break down this to the the tasks that might be involved, uh, starting with the curator, this uh, initially sets up a staging environment. So think about a staging environment, a staging catalog environment which is mapped to a staging location as well a- in S3, and then a- enable that and give that access to the data engineer to start, start pushing data into it, and then the security administrator who's uh, involved in kind of uh, enabling the access for it. Uh, one thing that you point, the, 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 the second bullet there about the, uh, the, the setup at the role level security, so this is where you wanna filter the data at the manufacturer level for the business user. So this is what it would look like. So think about it as an access pattern. So what you see on the left is a curator, sets up a staging environment, a staging environment within the Glue catalog, a staging environment within the S3 bucket, and then using an uh, IAM policy. So again, the resource-based policy we just talked about, both S3 and Glue catalog support the resource-based policy. And using that, you could use a cross-account trust. So again, very important to understand here. What we are seeing on the left side is, an, is a separate account from the account that the data engineer is accessing from. And the way, would, way, way you would do that is to enable a cross-account trust between the two and then use the resource-based policies at a glue catalog level in S3 to enable that, that access. So once that is set up, curator has full access to actually do that in the staging environment. Now that the data engineer has, has access to it, so this is what it would look like, You know, kind of translating this. Uh, so from the catalog policy would look something like that. You would enable database, table, and partition access. Storage grants would look like put, get, and delete objects. And then finally, the EMR configuration. So this is where, if you think about the, the data engineer trying to actually do the data processing, pulling it from a source system, and pushing it to S3, uh, they would use what is called the glue catalog ID, which is a, a account ID of where the catalog is present. So this is where the cross-account access comes in. So you have, you have your EMR cluster running in the data engineer uh, account, and then we have the data catalog, which is running on a separate account, and you, you, can, you can access it across the accounts. Okay? Uh, a quick, uh, quick view of what, what kind of controls you can do, fine-grained access controls. Uh, what you see on the left side is, um, is basically the uh, uh, giving full access to everything under the blog underscore dev Table or a blog underscore dev uh, database, so it's every all tables that come underneath that uh, have full access to it. So things like database star, table star, partition star. What you see on the right side is actually lo- filtering it down. So this is where you're saying I want to give access to only a set of tables. So prod underscore stars using a regular expression here, and then you're saying that this this is a, this IAM role when applied to a specific uh, specific uh, specific role. Uh, would give uh, all access to prod underscore star or prod, prod star tables, and then not to anything else. So this is where you can do fine-grained access controls using IAM policies and, uh, and glue catalog, okay? So now, what does the data pipeline look like? Now, going back to the data engineer. So he has now access to the staging environment. Now he should be able to, uh, he or she should be able to start processing and pushing data into it. A few services they might use things like uh, Amazon Kinesis and Database Migration Service, which can push pull data from source relational database systems. Uh, actually, a recent feature that we just added is Database Migration Service can have Kinesis as a target, so you can actually make data coming out from a relational database pushed directly to Kinesis and then have that as a part of your workflow. A uh, few other things that Tony just kind of uh, touched upon is DataSync, data DataSync that was launched. Or uh, um, we uh, talked about last uh, yesterday, which gives you the ability to use, you know, install agents on prem and have that send information directly to S3. Uh, SFTP as a service as well, which is backed by S3. Again, a useful service which doesn't, which lets you to use a standard SF, SFTP, uh, FTP protocol to uh, sync data to S3. Another one here is uh, is Scoop that I want to add as well. Scoop is uh, Apache Scoop is actually a, a service I or a tool that you could use to pull data from relational systems and and push it to uh, push it to a, a data lake like Amazon S3 running on uh, with EMR. Okay, now let's move to authorization. So we got we got the, the basic flow kind of set up. Within EMR, there is a few authorization uh, or authentication and authorization things you have to think about. So starting from authentication, cluster level authentication through Kerberos. Various services like Hive and U and Presto and Zeppelin can be can be authenticated through LDAP. So this is where you do LDAP authentication. And then finally, uh, perimeter security is using Apache Knox. Apache Knox is a service that uh, that lets you simplify authentication for various UIs. So think about resource manager. Uh, think about your Spark UI uh, uh, pages that has to be secured, and and you want to actually federate that to make sure that the AD logins can can actually work when users are accessing that that URL. Also, SSL termination at the perimeter, things that things you could do with uh, with enabling Apache Knox. So, moving on to authorization, uh, touched upon a little bit on this. This is the storage and service service level authorization. So. Uh, so what, what, using the security configuration with EMR, what you could do is you can take a developer, map it to a developer role, and, and, and put it into the EMR security configuration. Now what it does is when all, any request happens or goes through EMRFS to S3, the role assumption happens automatically to make sure that the user is, uh, the, all the access through, to S3 is, is done using that specific role. So again, a very important feature if you think about authorization or a storage level authorization. Next one is service authorization. So we talked about a little little bit about this as well. Uh, Apache Ranger uh, helps you do that. It can do things like authorization of hive tables, HDFS locations, or HBase, a few more to come. Also, uh, audits provide support for audits. So all all the data that's being accessed can now be audited and centrally stored and column and row filtering, column masking and row filtering uh, is supported for services like Hive as well. Okay. Uh, Here's a quick kind of uh, summary slide of everything related to EMR security. Uh, I've kind of covered most of it. Uh, Just to summarize, Kerberos and LDAP for authentication, EMRFS and Ranger for authorization, And then things like custom AMI, a feature that EMR supports, that lets you kind of preload with additional software and also encrypt your root volume. So again, you know, kind of a summary slide of all the things from the six things that we talk about: authentication, authorization, audit, encryption at rest, in motion, and compliance. Okay? Now the data is ready. What next? So this is where the curator comes in. Uh, They are actually doing and registering to the catalog running the sanity checks. So this is where the data is already in, in, the, in, the, in the staging catalog. Now you would commission that data set for production. This is where you want to filter around the data for a specific category, right? So this is where you would create a view. So let's look at an example of what the view would look like. So you go to Athena. This is where the curator goes in and sets up a view. The view looks something like this, like create view, sales electronics, and then it has this where clause that locks it down by electronics. Now, why is this important? This helps you uh, put it down, like this gets mapped to a table, a standard table in Glue, and and standard Glue-level IAM policies apply to this view as well. So now, as a a security administrator, you can actually lock down and give the same level of IAM policy to that view, and the data analyst can now access through Athena to this view, which is, again, sitting in a separate data catalog account. Lastly, uh, you know, QuickSight. Uh, we kind of uh, the we mentioned about reports. So this is where the business user wants to have access to reports, but that has to be filtered again at the um, uh, at the at the specific manufacturer level. So this is where the last use case we talked about. They want to see a report about the total sales, but lock it down or filter it down to a specific manufacturer. Uh, they, uh, QuickSight is is a, is a managed BI service that helps you build visualization. It has a feature called row role level security. So if, he, if I want to complete, that, uh, complete the diagram, this is where the business user comes in, he federates through his, uh, his, his IDP, and gets a SAML token, uh, connects to QuickSight, QuickSight has row-level row security enabled where all the data gets filtered by the manufacturer, calls Athena, the Athena kind of talks back to the centralized data catalog, and which is actually a view that was created to lock down uh, to a specific uh, product category. A quick uh, quick summary slide again for security controls on Athena, support for federation. IAM role is, is, is used and passed down all the way to the storage layer. And then finally, combining things like glue catalog policies and, and views can give you a fine level access control. This is the last one on uh, QuickSight security controls. Uh, this one uh, just talks about the same things. We talk about federation. Your QuickSight does give you the ability to do, the, do things like QuickSight-only users and also interface endpoints. So if you think about QuickSight needing access to VPC-level resources like Redshift and Presto and EMR, you can enable that with, uh, with, uh, with interface endpoints. With that, we've kind of covered uh, the uh, new data on loading, onboarding. Uh, I'm going to hand it off to uh, Tony again to walk us through existing data uh, access.
1: Thanks, Varun. Sure. So let's go ahead and go through something that actually might look kind of familiar, right? The process through which you go, you kind of want some data, you go talk to the catalog, you find it, you ask for permission, someone gives you permissions, uh, some grants are set up for you. That part's different, right? The setting up of grants. So this one I kind of want to focus on Redshift, right, which is different, if you recall, from just simple IAM policies. And we touched upon this a little bit where um, Redshift is not a service like Athena, and so you need to consider Authent and authored as well. And we talked about federation before, and we want to hit it again because it's actually really, really powerful. You'll note that the analyst in this flow doesn't actually need a username or password, local to Redshift, they're able to auth through their IDP, right, using their same credentials they use for Corp. And let's let's just quickly go through it, right? The analyst asks for a SAML token from their IDP. They throw that token over to IAM. IAM gives them an STS, um, uh, STS token. They use that STS token to then talk to Redshift to get temporary credentials to log in. And it's really powerful how you can map access in this way to groups within AD, because that's really where you want to be able to, really be able to turn on and turn off access uh, on a group level basis to your users, to data. Let's go ahead and look, take a look at how it actually flows up as well, right, when it's going through Spectrum, right? That was just Redshift, but let's talk about the actual Spectrum access. So if, if no one's familiar with Spectrum, I'll go through it quickly. It's, Spectrum is basically a hybrid approach to allowing Redshift to process data both locally as well as data on S3. And because we are processing data on S3, there are certain considerations, right? We need to look at IAM policies again. We need to think about Glue because Spectrum uses the Glue catalog as a basis for table registration. So you have to think of all the different components, right? So make sure you map them out when you're doing these assessments. And it's really important to get this right, right? Federation, being able to do group-level management in AD because if you make it really clunky and make it really difficult for users to be added or removed from groups, no one's going to want to use your data lake. It's gonna to be too painful to use and people are gonna start doing shadow IT and it's gonna be silo data sets all over again. So make sure that you do it right. Make sure, you, make sure that you make it secure, of course, but at the same time, accessible for your users. And this is what you can do to set it up, right? kind of touched upon this before, but in general, all you have to do is set up a group um, in Redshift and you map it to um, a policy with an IAM and then you configure SAML assertions for your IDP to map to it. Last but not least, I do want to talk about audit logging in Redshift as well, right? That's one important thing that has come up a lot these days where um, customers really want to be able to audit who touches our data, um, I want to figure out exactly why a select star was run on my data warehouse because there's really no call for that, right? Um, that typically points at some sort of data exfiltration. And quickly, here's um, the same sort of best practices list, right, of the key core things you should be doing to secure Redshift uh, presence. So federation, um, restricting access by IAM policy, using resource tags using logging with CloudTrail and using your S3 access logs, uh, making sure that you have SSL set up with your communications for cluster communication. And last but not least, here's the last workflow. It's one around data science, where a predictive model needs to be built by a scientist. And you'll notice that the flow is, again, very similar to the last workflow, right? You're touching data catalog, you're, touch- you're talking to S3, and remember, this pattern is something that's pretty much universal, right, for a data lake implementation, and so securing that catalog, securing that object store is paramount. And then you pull the data after you've been authorized into a notebook, you develop and train the models, and then you deploy and test that model. And one really cool thing um, with SageMaker is that you can actually have it integrate with uh, Hadoop clusters like EMR. And so typically in um, a machine learning workflow, you have a, um, a prepare phase followed by a training phase and then a host phase, right? And it's not enough, again, just to secure the interface through which the data scientist is working, right? The data scientist in this workflow is actually talking to EMR. And so you need to make sure that, first of all, the, the um, data scientist doesn't decide to SSH into the EMR cluster, which might have elevated rights and do some nasty things, right? So you need to figure out exactly what access the data scientist has for SageMaker as well as EMR and um, making sure that everything is pretty much kosher there. One interesting thing is that you're not not actually today bound just to using SageMaker for managed notebooks. One interesting thing that just came out uh, on EMR is uh, managed notebooks. I think it was maybe last week, I think. Uh, where they actually have managed Jupyter notebooks uh, on EMR clusters, free of charge. So if you're interested, um, that's one way that you can kind of keep your attack surface smaller while still giving your users the ability to use um, notebooks, Jupyter notebooks. And here's another quick slide in SageMaker security best practices. It's fairly light, um, partially because it's a managed, uh, managed service, but also because... Um, it's pretty much the same story over and over, right? You want to encrypt, you want to restrict access via IAM, you want to audit, things like that. So to kind of cap it all off, I do want to talk about how Amazon.com actually uses a data lake. And the consumer business continues to grow, right? And the volume of data grows correspondingly. And last year, I think, um, during Reven, event, actually, uh, Amazon.com actually came up on stage and talked about how they built their data lake um, on AWS. And quick view here, um, the challenge for them was really to load 500K transactions a day and serve maybe more than 300K queries and extracts each day from their various business units, right? Amazon.com, Amazon Prime, Music, Alexa, Twitch, um, all those different sort of um, business units. And this flow that you see here looks very, very similar to the workflows that we showed you, right? Because it really is something that is very effective when it's implemented correctly. They have DynamoDB capturing all the transactions. Everything is fed into a central data lake on S3. Glue is used to catalog the data, and they have two different kinds of workflows, right? They have Redshift for their SQL-based queries, and they have EMR for their more in-depth analytics, machine learning, big data processing, that kind of thing. And the core goal that they wanted out of their data lake was to be able to ease experimentation, to speed up the rate at which they get insights from data. And um, they've been having great success with the solution. So if you are interested in this, right, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go too much deeper into it, but um, there was a session last year at reInvent. You can, it's on SlideShare, it's on YouTube. Go ahead and take a look at it because they go pretty much in depth on how they implemented it. So in summary, right, Things that we want you to take away from this entire conversation. First, federate your access, right? You want to limit the amount of places that you need to keep track of users and change their access rights. Um, You want to be able to know clearly what the roles and responsibilities are for every single role that you have in your organization. Set up a matrix around this. You want to leverage that centralized data catalog, right? You want to be able to search on metadata and control based on that metadata as well. You want to use both the preemptive and detective controls that Varun was talking about. You want to perform regular audits of your security posture on your data lake. You want to secure those three core layers, storage, catalog, and processing. And you really want to incentivize your teams to actually use the catalog, right? You don't want them to go back to shadow IT. You don't want them to go back to data silos. So whether it be a mandate from up high, from the C-level, or maybe some incentives, such as um, making it easier for their own users to share data, right? You may have some different data science teams that are really starving for data, so they, in- they intuitively want to um, get more data, so they-, they offer up their data in exchange for other data. You kind of want to incentivize some sort of flow with which teams are actually putting their data sets into the catalog. And this goes back to the point I made earlier, where you want to be able to streamline that process between producers and consumers, right? And that includes access to data sets that are produced and consumed. Uh, if it's way too painful for me to get access to a data set we get the data lake, I'm not gonna use it, right, unless I really have to. So you want to streamline that process because in the absence of roadblocks, people behave in, in a secure environment, right? It's when things are painful that they start doing workarounds. They start leveraging EMR clusters that are overly permissive to access data sets in S3, and that's where you run into trouble. So thank you. And please, please, please complete the session survey in the mobile app. It really helps us get feedback to improve the sessions in the future. Thanks.